If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 John. Uh, so there's the book of John. There's also the book of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, both written by the same guy. Uh, all of those are written by the same guy, including the book of Revelation, written by the apostle John. He didn't name the books. So if you're like, man, that's narcissistic. He wrote all these books and named them all after himself. He didn't name them. We named them that after the fact because he's the guy that wrote it. So we're in the book of 1 John. We'll be in chapter 3. And I love the book of 1 John because it's written at the end of John's life. John is in his 90s at this point. And one of the phrases that you see throughout his writings is you see him say, little children. And when you're 95 years old, everybody's a little child. So every single one of us, he's looking at you. You might be 85 years old right now. And, and John would be writing you saying, listen, little child who has no experience. Let me tell you what I know. He was most likely the closest personal friendship that Jesus had while Jesus was alive. And it's from his perspective that he helps us and wants us to understand what we can have in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, one of the things that we're going to look at today in the third chapter is this idea of evidence that John wants us to understand that if in fact we are in Jesus, there should be evidence of our relationship with Jesus in our lives. That word evidence, it simply means an outward sign that there should be evidence to help other people know that you do in fact belong to Jesus. Uh, when I was a kid, we had a 1984 Buick LeSabre. That was the, the car that my dad drove around. And if you had, or remember back in the 80s, if you had a car uh, that was like a Buick LeSabre, it had felt seats. Now, there is no such thing as felt seats anymore. Uh, they do not make those in cars, but back in the day, they did. And the reason they don't make them anymore is because the felt seat was always hot. It just didn't matter. It was like sitting on a blanket all the time. Uh, There's a lot of sweat, especially if you were in Houston, which is where I'm from. It also stained really easily. So if you spilled a drink on felt, that drink just remained there for the duration and the life of the car. If you accidentally dropped a piece of gum on felt, then yeah, that gum's not coming out. And I remember one day I get called from my mom and my dad to go outside to the car. And I remember when they said, Kurt, we need you to come with us to see something. I, I could tell already that I was in trouble. I was about eight years old. I didn't know what I had done. I was already starting to try and come up with excuses, even though I didn't know what they were about to tell me I was in trouble for. And I get out to the 1984 Buick Saber, and they open up uh, the back door and they show me that in the back seat is my name written in a black Sharpie on the back of the seats in the felt, C-U-R-T. And they just look at me and they say, you wanna, you wanna talk to us about this? And I said, I promise that was not me. And they looked at me and they said, really? Are you gonna deny it? Your name is written in the back of the seat. And I said, no, 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 I promise. I am not the one that wrote Kurt into the felt. And so not only did I get in trouble for writing my name in the back of the seat, I also then got in trouble for lying about the fact that I wrote my name in the back of the seat. And I was furious because it really was not me. And yet all the evidence, the outward sign said that I was the one that did it. 30 years later, 30 years later, we're at Christmas or Thanksgiving, some holiday, and my younger sister, who's two years younger, just maybe she's been living with this guilt for 30 years. And she says, hey, uh, can I just go ahead and mention something to the family? Do you remember, probably y'all don't remember this at all. I know it's not a big deal, but do you remember that someone wrote Kurt's name in the back 
of the Buick LeSabre. And I said, do I remember? Yes, I remember. That has not slipped my mind that someone wrote my name. And she said, well, actually, that wasn't Kurt who wrote that. And that was me. And I'm telling you, I was, it was 30 years later. I was ready to get a wooden spoon and say, you're going to get the same punishment I got 30 years ago. And I looked at her and said, why would you write my name on the back of the car instead of your name? And she was only six years old, but she was smart enough to say, I knew that if I wrote my name, I would get in trouble for it. And so I just wrote your name instead because I really wanted to feel like what it would be like to take a Sharpie and write in the felt. Evidence, evidence is an outward sign that demonstrates something. John wants us to understand in his epistles and his letters what evidence there is of our relationship with Jesus. First, in chapter two, verse six, he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Talking about Jesus. That if we say that we are in Jesus, if we say we are Christian, that we abide in him, we have a relationship with him, then we need to live the same way that Jesus walked. What does it mean to abide? Simply put, to abide means to know God, to love God, and to obey God. Are you a Christian? Do you abide in Christ? Then John wants you to evaluate and understand, is there evidence to demonstrate that you do in fact abide in Christ? Let's look in chapter three, we'll start in verse one. We're gonna look at a lot of text today. That's the fun part about a book study is that we can go through a big chunk of the book to help us to understand how it fits together. So this first 10 verses or so in John looks like it's a very different idea than the second half. And yet they go very much hand in hand together. John, 1 John chapter three, starting in verse one says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That in and of itself is profound. That God loves us so much that we become children of God. Here's what it's trying to say. It's saying that God loves you as much right now as he will ever love you. You can sin, do terrible, terrible things, and you will not lose the love of God. You could be perfect, do a bunch of amazing things, be a wonderful person, walk all kind of old people across the street, and you will not earn the love of God. That you already have the maximum amount of love from God that you will ever have. It can't be lost and it can't be earned. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Look at verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's not saying that you don't have any sin ever again. It's not saying that you're perfect, but it means that you don't have those habitual sins. If you have sin in your life that you're not wrestling with, that you're not turning away from, if you're not repenting from, there is a problem. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. That evidence, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's what we tend to do when we unpack a text like that. Here's simply put is what John is saying. John is saying that, that if you love Jesus, if you abide in him, there should be evidence of your life. That the sins that you had before you were a Christian should be things that you're working through, that you're turning from those things. If you love Jesus, you shouldn't want to sin. And so if you have a habitual sin in your life that you keep turning to over and over and over again, and you've eventually just said, you know, I'm gonna sin and love Jesus at the same time. He's saying, no, that should not be the mindset. You should hate the sin. You should run from the sin. But the challenge with a text like this is we tend to take it into one of two different extremes. We either gravitate towards this idea that we have to be perfect, which leads us to legalism, or we gravitate towards this idea that sin doesn't matter that I can sin as much as I want. And maybe you've grown up in a church that went one way or the other. There's plenty of legalistic churches. That you grow up with this idea that Christianity is that there are certain rules, things that I'm supposed to do, and there, there are certain other rules that are things that I'm not supposed to do. And so I try and walk this line of doing certain things and not doing certain things. And people who aren't walking that line, we, we try and beat them up to where they get back in line. And then legalism naturally leads to even more rules of, well, no, you can't do that, and you, you shouldn't do that. And, and all of a sudden, people are miserable in it. We're judgmental. We're looking at people. We're saying, well, they don't love God because they do that. They don't fit in because they're doing that. So that's a bad extreme to take this. But the opposite extreme is just as bad. The idea that, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's all gonna be forgiven. So man, just keep on sinning. Do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. God's gonna forgive you anyway. That that shouldn't be the case. That it's somewhere in the middle of this idea that I recognize I am a sinner. I have sinned in my life. I'll never be perfect. And yet I should pursue holiness and do my best to wrestle with the sin in my life and leave it behind. And if I do stumble, if I do fall, that, that I repent of it. So okay, I'm gonna turn away from that because I love God. It, it really simply put, looks like this, uh, that, that ultimately we will never be sinless, but we should sin less. You're never gonna be sinless, but your life should look different than the world around you. You should sin less. Now think of it as a relationship. Think of it as a marriage. Throughout all of scripture, we see this idea of God's relationship with his people is this picture, this symbol of marriage. And if someone is married to somebody else and they continually cheat on that person and they continually cheat that person wrong and don't show love to that person, treat them terribly, that they might confess and say, no, I love you, I value you, 
But at some point, especially if you're an outsider watching the relationship, you'd say, well, well wait a second, there's no evidence that they actually do love you. They're, they're giving you lip service, but their life doesn't demonstrate it. It's the same thing. John's saying we're in a relationship with God. If we abide in him, there should be evidence that we abide in him. And so then he kind of starts to, to turn the corner a little bit. And here's what he says in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So first he's talking about righteousness, putting off sin. And now he's taking it a step further and he's saying the evidence of that righteousness is that we love one another. This is nothing new. They're going all the way back to Genesis that God is telling us that we should love God and we should love others. And then he gives a really famous example of the lack of this love. He goes on in verse 12 to say this, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. And so he's using this example of a very famous story in scripture. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, maybe you, you've heard some of the story of Cain and Abel. But Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to God. Abel brings the first fruits of his sacrifice to God, the best of what he has. He works the land, gives the best of that to God, and it says that God blesses him for it. God looks down on that sacrifice and is pleased. Cain does the opposite. Cain is still working the land, but instead of bringing his best to God, he brings his second best. He's keeping the best for himself and kind of giving the leftovers to God. And it says that God is not pleased with Cain. Now, if you stop the story right there, whose fault is it that God is not pleased with Cain? It's Cain's fault. Cain didn't do what he was supposed to do. But who does Cain blame? Abel. It's really a picture of what we wrestle with in culture and in society right now is the same thing that we've wrestled with since the very beginning of mankind. That instead of taking ownership for our actions, instead of saying, it's my fault, I need to do better. I need to change. I need to go a different direction. We tend to have a victim mentality that says, well, it's not my fault. It's because of, well, it's their fault. And then God gives a warning to Cain. Before anything bad happens, here's what God says to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And that's what John is getting to when he uses this example of Cain and Abel. He's talking about pursuing righteousness. Why should we be pursuing righteousness? Because John knows that just like Cain, sin is crouching at the door of your life and my life and wants to destroy us. It wants to take away the future that God has for us. And there's that decision that we have to make on whether it will let it run its course or will turn away. So what happens next? Instead of heeding the warning, Cain goes and kills his brother Abel. And then God turns to Cain and he says, where is Abel and what is his response? Here's what Cain says, it's a famous verse. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Cain in his mind, his answer is no, it's, 
I'm not in charge of my brother, but, but what is God implying? God's saying, no, you are your brother's keeper. You should know where he is. It's the same thing that John wants us to understand as Christians, that we are our brother's keeper. John spent a lot of time with Jesus, and so he knew that Jesus over and over and over again was putting forth this truth that we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. But our neighbor is not just the people we like, not just our friends, not just our family. Jesus says, no, your neighbor is your enemy. You should love everyone. Here's what John writes that Jesus himself said in 1335, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you blank. What was it? If you love one another, the evidence of my relationship with Jesus, the evidence of your relationship with Jesus should be seen in how we love one another. Jesus is living in the time in the first century where culturally reciprocity was the thing that they ruled the day. Reciprocity is this idea that I treat you a certain way because you're gonna also treat me a certain way. Uh, uh, just simple definition of reciprocity is this, uh, that it's the practice of exchanging things with others for mutual benefit. And so if you lived in my town, I would give you a certain rate on deals uh, because I would expect also something from you in return. But if an outsider would come to your town, you would treat them differently. They wouldn't get the same rate as someone inside the town. Why? Because they, they couldn't in the long-term benefit you the same. Reciprocity. Now, culturally, we exist in a different time than that. And yet there are cultural norms and expectations that are very similar to that idea of reciprocity. That without knowing it, you place expectations on the people around you to behave as a quote unquote model citizen. Things that aren't even necessarily legal or illegal, but just expected of people. Let me give you some examples. When you go to a grocery store and you park in the parking lot, you park inside the lines. As a matter of fact, when you go to the grocery store and you see someone that doesn't park inside the lines, it bugs you. Especially if someone is intentionally not parking inside the lines. You ever pull up and someone is parked like in between two lines? Most of the time it's a very nice car because they don't want to get a ding on their car. Occasionally you'll see that person and they park in four different spaces. Now why are they doing that? Because it's like, hey, my car's really nice. I don't want you to open your, your car door. And, and there's a part of you, if you're like me, that when you see that, it really bugs you. Now, they're not really breaking the law. They're not going to get arrested for that. They're not even going to get towed for that. And yet they're doing something that culturally they should not do. I, I don't know about you. What I want to do when I see cars like that is to park as close as I physically can to their driver's side, just to let them know like, hey, you're a jerk. And I want you to be aware that you are a jerk. There's other expectations that you place on people. If you are in the right lane and you can turn or go straight and there is a lane to the left of you that can go straight and you're not turning right from that lane, you're a jerk. And the rest of us are judging you for that. We don't like you. And sometimes we'll pull up really close behind to just let you know, hey, you're doing something. It's not illegal. It's not against the law. You're allowed to do that. And yet culturally, we're not a fan. If you're driving out to the mountains and you're on a two lane road, one of those lanes is for driving. One of those lanes is for passing. And occasionally what happens is somebody gets in that left lane and they're not passing, they're just driving. And the rest of us 
like to let you know that you should not be doing that. And some of you very aggressively like to let people know that they should not be doing that. You get up as close as you possibly can. You might be going 80 miles an hour and you're still gonna try and get to where you could kiss their bumper if you wanted to. And you're trying to communicate to them what? what? You're a jerk. You're not doing what you are supposed to do. I don't do that because I'm a pastor, but I know some of you, <laughs> some of you do that where, where you're, they're not really breaking the law, but you're trying to communicate that you are breaking a social norm that you are not supposed to break. Hey, even some really simple things. Right now I've got a broken hand, and so I can't shake people's hand with my right hand. You ever tried to shake somebody's hand with your left hand? Like it's weird. Everything about it is awkward. Like they reach out like this, and you reach out like this, and then you just grab their hand, and, <laughs> and you do this. And they're, they're looking like, what is going on right now? I don't know. Sometimes I'll just grab the other one and then I'll just, God bless you, my child. You know, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. Maybe we'll fist bump. And then you immediately, you feel obligated to say, hey, I got a broken hand. I'm not weird. I just got, I, I, you want to test it when you leave today. Just go for a week, try and shake people's hand with your left hand. And then don't say anything. And they're going to walk away from you and be like, I think they're a serial killer because that... That is not what you're supposed to do. So, so we have all these cultural norms of what we are supposed to do. And I would say that those things you could consider natural love. So sometimes we give ourselves a pat on the back for doing things that we're supposed to do, like taking a grocery cart back to where you're supposed to put the grocery cart. Like you don't get extra special credit for that. Like that's what you are supposed to do. But what John is trying to tell us to do is beyond natural love. He's trying to tell us that we need to love the life that includes supernatural love. What's the difference between those two things? It's this, that natural love is transactional. I'm doing something for you because I expect you to do the same thing for me. I stay out of the left lane because I also want you to stay out of the left lane. It's a transactional expectation that we love people who deserve to be loved. But what Jesus calls us to do is supernatural love. It is unconditional. What does that mean? That I'm not loving you based on your actions. I'm not loving you based on what you can do for me. No, instead, I'm loving people who do not deserve to be loved. And that's really hard. That's different. That's challenging. Supernatural love causes everybody else around you to say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? That, that's a little bit crazy. Yesterday, I, I had the privilege, I went out to California and I officiated the funeral of my first ever boss. Her name was Nancy Paul. I know her, knew her as Pastor Nancy. So when I was 15 years old, I was a just scraggly kid with acne who didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I worked this camp and at camp I did skits and told stories and, and Pastor Nancy, hired me as a 15-year-old to go work at her church. It was a different church than the church I grew up in. My mom was on staff at a different church. My dad was a deacon at that church. And I started working at a different church when I was 15. So from 15 to 19, I worked for Pastor Nancy. Full-time during the summers as a summer intern, part-time the rest of the year. And she was incredible. She was an amazing first boss. She had this joy that was just infectious in how she lived and who she was. But the thing that I learned more from Pastor Nancy than anything else was how to demonstrate 
supernatural love. She had this compassion for people. And then we would go into the inner city and she would do this apartment ministry where every week we'd go hang out with these kids that, that didn't have moms and dads to, to, to love on them and, and, and teach them biblical truth. We went to the homeless shelter and we would put on a vacation Bible school for the family homeless shelter, these kids that did not have a home. We went back every single week and spent time with those kids. This is just who she was. Then her husband, who was about 10 years older than her, he retired, so he's in his 60s. She's in her 50s. She's, she's been a children's pastor for, for decades. Her own biological kids are grown. She's got three kids that are fully grown. And in her 50s, God laid it on her heart to, to become a foster parent. And so she becomes a, goes through all the stuff that you have to go through to become a foster parent. She starts fostering a little boy, and then foster came to, him, to her, the, the agency, and they said, well, well, hey, since you've got him, would you also be willing to take his brother? It's the same mom, but different dad. And so she started adopting, uh, fostering another little boy. And these were boys that, that they were both born with, uh, with different health conditions. Their, their mom uh, was a prostitute, she was on drugs. And so that they had all kinds of different struggles that they had. And so she started fostering these kids and then started transitioning to foster to adopt. And then the foster agency came back and they said, well, hey, there's, there's another brother. And so she ends up with three. And then they came back and they said, well, actually there's two more. And so in her fifties, she ends up adopting five boys, all under the age of seven, all born addicted to drugs, all with different health issues, all with different psychological conditions and issues in her 50s. And can I just tell you, it was hard. Now, now most people at that stage in life, that's, that's not what you choose to do in life. Like your, your husband's retiring, you're retiring, you're, you're empty nester, your kids are growing. It's like, all right, let's golf, let's travel. Like there's so many things that we could do with our time and our resources and our money. And, and Nancy said, I'm going to adopt five little boys and show them unconditional love. And it was really hard. And there were people that told her she was crazy. A lot of people told her she was crazy. They were like, wait, why? Well, why would you do that with where you are? And, and she had people say, you're too bold. You shouldn't do that at your age. But she was demonstrating the supernatural love. She was demonstrating the evidence of what it means to follow after Jesus. You see, John is, is trying to, to, to use just this waterfall to help us understand that at first, our love that we have for God comes because God loved us first. It is a response to his love. And if we really love him, if we really abide in him, then we should be fighting the sin in our life and pursuing holiness. Why should we be pursuing holiness? So that we could live supernatural lives of love to our brothers and sisters around us. Who is our brother? Who's our sister? Jesus says, everybody, that person that drives you crazy, that neighbor that you don't like, that coworker that gets on your nerves, that is the person you should love. And here's what's true in our lives. I, I preached a message here uh, three weeks ago. And if I did a quick quiz right now on what I preached on, Hardly any of you would have any clue what I preached on three weeks ago. And here's why I know that's true. Because I couldn't tell you right now what I preached on three weeks ago. You definitely couldn't tell me what I preached on in January. 
You for sure couldn't tell me what I preached on a year ago because you will not remember my sermons. You just won't. But you will remember the way that I love this congregation. That, that talk is cheap, but actions matter. The same is true in every relationship that you have. People will forget all kinds of things that you said to them, but they will never forget how you treated them. Here's what John goes on to say. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we've experienced eternal life. We've become Christians. How do we know? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He said, if you're not demonstrating that supernatural love, then you don't know Jesus. That's what John is writing. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this, we know love that he laid his own life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's really cool about this verse is this is 1 John 3.16. Now, it's like a mirror sister to John 3.16. John is not the one who wrote the chapter and verses. So just in a really cool God wink from God, this matches up almost perfectly with John 3.16. It's a fuller explanation that the way that we know love is that God laid his life down for us. And because of that, because of what God has done for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He's saying talk is cheap. He's saying that if you have been blessed by God financially, and you see people in need and you don't do anything about it. John is saying, hey, you're not demonstrating supernatural love. He's saying, you're missing out on what God has for you. Where, John is saying, is the evidence. Simon Sinek has a really cool quote where he talks about our actions. He says, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where there are people all around you that are going through junk. What if we could help them feel the love of Jesus? In New Orleans in 1985, uh, they had a unique summer. The city public pools had zero drownings that year which at a really large city like New Orleans, that, that was an uncommon thing. And so at the end of the summer, they threw a big party. They brought all their lifeguards together. They celebrated the fact that they had gone an entire summer without losing anybody. Over 200 people attended the party. Over 100 of those people were in fact lifeguards. At the end of the party, they all get out of the pool and floating in the pool was Jerome Moody, a 33-year-old who drowned in the middle of the party and no one noticed. Over 100 lifeguards were in the pool and no one noticed him drown. See, sometimes inside the church, we have people in our communities that are drowning, 
Sometimes those people that are drowning are inside the church and what they need more than anything else is to experience the love of Jesus. And, and the question that John has for us is where is the evidence in your life? If you really are abiding in Jesus, then it's an understanding, it's a recollection to say that Jesus died for me and that changes everything. And now because of his unconditional love, I should live a life that is pursuing him and looking at the world around me and not just loving them because of what I get back, but loving the people that can never benefit me ever in this life. Loving the least and the lost and the broken and the hurting. Loving the people that don't like me and don't like what I stand for. Loving the people that irritate me. That that's what it means to follow Jesus. And what could happen, church, if we lived out that supernatural love? Here's a challenge that I wrote down for myself this week, I would encourage you to write it down and take up the challenge. What if every day this week you prayed this, God, help me to love. Just pray that prayer. God, help me to love. God, show me who to love. God, let me love my neighbor. And what if we became a church that that's what we were known for? More than anything else, that man, that is a church that loves everybody a church that demonstrates supernatural love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that, that John wants us to experience his Jesus, that he knew you intimately. He knew you personally. He was best friends with Jesus on this earth. And so he knew what everybody was missing. God, help us to have that same passion, that same energy, that same excitement. God, help us to not just live in natural love, doing things that everybody else knows that we're supposed to do. God, instead, help us to live in a way that the world looks at us and, and says, man, something is different about that. That doesn't make sense. God, help us to spend our time in a way that from a worldly perspective doesn't make sense. Help us to use our money sacrificially in a way that the world would look at and say, that doesn't make sense. God, in doing so, help us to point people to you. 